I mean, I feel like what comes to mind for me is this seems like it can make it a lot easier to not take certain things personally in the moment. Mm-hmm. That if I know, you know, if my partner reacts in a particular way where I feel like maybe it's an overreaction or like, oh, this doesn't seem justified, I can realize like, oh, maybe that's kind of his primitive brain kicking in, afraid of some kind of hurt or wanting mm-hmm. to survive or something like that. And so maybe that's a cue to me to maybe be more compassionate or to call a halt. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your career relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multi-Amory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about your brain on relationships, how the different parts of your brain affect how we relate to our partners and how we can use that to build better relationships. Yeah, so I read this book recently called Wired for Love, which, among other things, talks about attachment theory. Um, but in addition, it is it discusses how to better understand your partner's brain and cultivate a romantic relationship based on love and trust. So synthesizing research findings on how and why love lasts drawn from neuroscience, attachment theory and emotion regulation. This book presents 10 guiding principles that can improve any relationship. We're not going to talk about all those today. Yeah. So, so Emily told us about some of the things from this book and we started just like kind of getting into it immediately of like discussing it and, and, you know, debating about it and thinking about it. And so we're like, Hey, what if we did that on this episode and kind of had almost like a book club, but where only one person's read the book that we're talking about, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we've all not, read, not much of a book club, but we've all that's read other like things bo- related to it. That's more like a book report really. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like, <laughs> but it's an school. interactive report. Yeah. 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 There you go. Is it just me? The, the title wired for love I I just like for some reason I hear like an '80s love song. Maybe I'm thinking of Tainted Wired love. love. Like I'm thinking of Tainted Love, like a Tainted Love style song, but called Wired for Ooh. Love. Hmm. love. Interesting. Wired for Love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Know? Well, it's good. The whole thing is uh, like your brain is wired for love, and and his point at the beginning is that your brain is actually not wired for love; that it's wired more for war. Um, And we're going to get into that talking about the primitives and the ambassadors, but that your primitives are the ones who are very wired for war because that's when we were in the dark ages or the dawn of time or Adam and Eve or whatever, when, (laughs) you know, saber tooth tigers were running (laughs) after us. I don't know. My science or my my history may be super off right now. We get the image. We get the image. A time when life was a little bit more challenging for us than, you know, exactly out of ripe avocados. Right. Yeah, toast. Yeah. Then we needed to be more wired for war and for staying alive and survival, mm-hmm. but that mm. that is still imprinted into our brains. Right. And so unfortunately, like in situations where something not as intense happens, we still may go immediately to that kind of warring part of our mm. brain as opposed to the love part. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, yeah. Speaking of parts of the brain, let's let's get into it and talk about the brain a little bit. 
Now, hang on, yeah. Jace. Bef- yeah, before we dive into that, oh, yeah. so you know some things about the brain. Doesn't your dad know about the brain? Yes. Oh, yeah, you're, your dad's a brain man. <laughs> your dad's like a brain scientist or a brain teacher, a brain professor. He's a, a, a neuroscience professor. Yeah, yes. that, that's yeah. the title. So, uh, yeah, brains and, and other neuromuscular junctions in the body. It's not all just... Um, just in the brain but yes he does he does teach brain stuff so do you feel like you osmos some of that from your father uh if by osmos you mean actually just like listened and paid attention and (laughs) have had a lot of conversations and yes okay great um and he and he occasionally sends me books i was actually just thinking this morning when emily was talking about this one i was like my dad hasn't sent me a book in a while Hmm. but he would send me books that are um Hmm. you know kind of science books for the layperson but that are about topics that he kind of knows about through neuroscience. Um, And like this one specifically, and maybe we'll get into it, but kind of reminds me of a book called mirroring people. That was really interesting. That's about mirror neurons, um, Mm. which Mm. are essentially responsible for not only our ability to uh, imitate other people, but also our ability to feel what other people are feeling, essentially Mm. empathy, but also like in a very like real sense that we have sort of, matching neurons along with all the neurons in our body that engage with what other people are doing and are engaging while we watch people do things, um, even when we're not doing them ourselves hmm. or not even planning to do them ourselves. Interesting. That's why you kind of have that like Ugh! reaction if you see someone like cut themselves mm-hmm. or something. It's those mm-hmm. mirror neurons like firing, firing yeah. and some people's fire more strongly than others and it's something you can develop. Anyway, stuff like that, right? So he sends me books about that or about glial cells in the brain or about, you know, different ways that our brains make decisions, stuff like that. So, yes, I have this kind of armchair knowledge <laughs> great. of things through through him and through those books. Okay, great. And this is, like, very much that for the layperson. Like, it obviously does get into neurons and, you know, all of the things, the serotonin and the dopamine and the things that are happening within your body. But, again, like, explains it very easily um, and very accessibly to anyone Um, But they do go through, yeah, the parts of the brain and kind of what they do for us in the context of a romantic relationship. Um, And the first one is the hippocampus. Where the hell is that, by the way? Where's the hippocampus? Kind of in the middle. I feel like the hippocampus is in the middle, but... Yeah, you should pull up a picture so we can see. Pull up a brain picture. Keep keep explaining. Keep going. Tell us about the hippocampus. Okay, okay. So apparently this helps place relationship events in time, sequence, and context, which is interesting, like... I feel like my brain, like I'm really good at remembering dates. Mm. I wonder if this is similar or if that's not anything to do with the hippocampus. Is yeah. they're just talking about it like if you if you get into an argument, for example, with your partner and then you're like, well, you said this on this day at that time. Huh. You know, oh, it's okay. those types of things that this part of the brain remembers yeah. or maybe doesn't remember when you're mm. primitives, which I'm which I'm jumping forward, but like when you get into that warring mode, then like that part of your brain kind of shuts down and isn't as good at doing its job. Interesting. Yeah. So this picture that Jace just pulled up, it just says the hippocampus is just memory and it's like, you know, very Mm. simple, but that does make sense that that's kind of like, I mean, your memory and your timeline is where you're putting events in relation to other events. Right. Okay. So that's the, and this is, and this is kind of like, right near the center area a little bit toward the back toward the back and on the bottom okay (laughs) okay for those of you trying to visualize along with this (laughs) okay all right what's Um, what's what's the next one the next one is the insula the insula 
Um, so mm-hmm. that's the the really vital contributor to feeling empathy. So it allows us to like pick up our own body sensations, our own gut feelings, and then also helps us attach to other people. Um, it also is responsible for us like doing things like feeling disgust or even having an orgasm. Hmm. Now, this is an interesting part of the brain. <laughs> yeah, yes. there's a lot of responsibilities Very. there. Yeah, interesting. It's related to having an orgasm. To me, that's, I never, I'd never heard that before, that there's kind of like a part of the brain responsible for that. Or well, I know that like... This guy says it. When, <laughs> go ask this guy. Um, I know Stan. that when... Um, when you are approaching orgasm, like kind of when you're right at the, like kind of the point of no return, mm-hmm. you know, like right before the orgasm happens, but where, you know, you can't stop, like it's going to happen, that there is a part of your brain that like shuts down. It's kind of the same part of your brain that like when you get drunk, that shuts down like your inhibitions, hmm. essentially. Okay. Um, you know, that because I think there's something about like, it needs to kind of get that obstacle out of the way in order for you to have an orgasm. And I think that's also why certain pornography seems really awesome when you're about to have an an orgasm and then immediately afterwards is really disgusting to you. Mm. I don't know if anyone else has had that experience. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or I think, or like I've known that like a lot of people sometimes when they have sex that like maybe they're partaking in a kind of fetish or a type of sexual play that like, when they're really, really aroused and really into it, it's like, oh yeah, this is fantastic and I love it. And then as soon as the orgasm ends, it's like, whoa, actually this is kind of a turnoff or I don't know if I want to be doing this or things like that. It's, you know, sex huh. brain. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, I guess that's where like aftercare would come in. It's like yeah. that's why you need to be aware of this and yeah. take care of your partner or yourself in yeah, that situation. Yeah. yeah. Huh. yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, um, gosh. Okay. Keep, keep going. This is fascinating. Okay. Stuff. Yeah. So, okay. The next thing is going to be the right brain, which, you know, everyone talks about like, I'm a right brain person. I'm a left brain person. (laughs) But yeah, the right brain apparently helps us decipher all things social, um, like such as reading facial expressions, vocal tones, body language. um, And then it's very superior at picking up things like social cues and then responding to them effectively. Mm. Also, like everyone says that it's like the artistic side of Mm. your brain. And that some people's right more are more right brain oriented or more left brain oriented, while others have both. So this is the side of your brain that, at least to put this in a relationship context, like that's the side that's scanning for your partner's facial expressions, how they say a certain thing, but maybe their tone doesn't match their words. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that's what picks up on subtext. I would imagine also body language, things like that. Yeah, yeah, it seems yeah, like absolutely. It. Okay. okay, and what about the left brain? So that is more like an, an, an understanding the importance of things like detail and precision. Um, and they help convey words of friendliness or consideration and thoughtfulness. Um, okay. So again, like if somebody is upset, then that side of your brain can sort of, instead of needing to be like, it can still be empathetic, but also start to like parse out, like what are the correct words to say? What are the like find things to do in this moment to help my partner. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's kind of like maybe your right brain or other parts of your brain are firing on like this person's really annoying to me right now, or I'm feeling disgusted by what this person's doing right now. But Mm. my left brain knows what's going to help is if I'm like, say something really kind and thoughtful to my partner right now Mm. to like maybe help them feel better. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah, Kind of how do I approach it instead of just 
just feeling about it. How do right. I feeling, feeling, feeling? Yeah, yeah. I respond to yeah, it. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Um, and then finally, the oh, how do I say this? Orbital, <laughs> orbitofrontal cortex. Yeah, orbitofrontal cortex. So yeah. that helps us do things like get into the mindset of the other person and, and kind of like walk in their shoes, so to speak. Huh. Um, it's our moral and empathetic center, and it can communicate with what we're about to talk about, which are our ambassadors and our primitives. So both the primitive side of ourselves and then the more like complex and pragmatic sides of ourselves as well, which is really important when you get into arguments with people. That, like, that side of your brain can put yourself in the other person's shoes. Huh, interesting. Okay, so it also so looks not, like, from mm-hmm. the, again, from this diagram, that the orbitofrontal is kind of on the front bottom part of your brain. It seems like that's kind of where that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where your third eye is. <laughs> We're going to yeah. be all well, about it. I was going to say something more sinister, but, like, <laughs> there. what's the part when people used to get lobotomized? I'm like, is it uh, right there? Gosh, I don't well, have no idea. Yeah, lobotomy was like severing the connection between like the the frontal cortex and like the skull, essentially. I believe. I feel like oh, this entire episode is gonna be like uh, the combination of our armchair knowledge yeah, about right. the brain. So I'm sorry for all and young probably, like yes. neuroscien- actual neuroscientists out there who are listening and going, yeah, uh, yeah, really angry I'm right now, heads <laughs> against the wall. Yeah, <laughs> but we apologize in advance. Yeah. But I will say that I, I think the point of this episode is not about like let's you know, really understand each of the parts of the brain. It's more about acknowledging the fact that there are different parts of the brain mm-hmm. and that they each serve different, different functions. functions that ideally will all work together in harmony as a good team in order to, you know, help us have the best possible relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And and this book did touch on the fact that because of things that may have happened in your life, like certain parts of your brain may be more developed than others. Mm. Certain things may be like overly developed and then some things may not be developed at all. And this can affect your relationships in a variety of ways. So just something to think about kind of like, what do I do well in Mm. relationships in relation to this? And what do I maybe do not as well? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it it reminds me a little bit, and I think this next section we're going to talk about has to do with this, but of of another book that that I read, again, was one of the ones my dad sent me, uh, where this one talks about how our brain makes decisions, um, and that it's essentially not like our brain sort of unilaterally calculates a thing and then decides what we're going to do, but it's more like within our brain, that like within our brain, there are different almost you could think of them like um, uh, like delegates or something, different mm-hmm. ones all arguing different options against each other. And it's kind of about like which side kind of wins that argument or wins that debate is how we'll actually act. But it's not mm-hmm. like our brain unilaterally wants to go do something. It's that sort of like this whole committee each wants to do very different things and they yeah, kind I've, of debate it. I said bees, not as a joke. Like really, I've heard that it is kind of like the way that hives mm. of bees make decisions. Really? So like if two scout bees come back and both of them are like reporting to the other bees about a different location of food um, and, you know, they do their little bee dance, you know, that is kind of that way of like, it's almost like the two different bees are campaigning to a certain extent to try to get more bees on their side of like, no, mine's better. We should go to oh, this one. I see. 
you know, and that it's kind of similar the way that like the neurons in your brain act as well, trying to like make a decision again, that it's not a unilateral decision that all the bees are like, yeah, we're going to go here, that there is like a little bit of conflict and uh, persuasion and back and forth that happens until they finally decide like, okay, we'll go with Jerry's <laughs> Jerry, the <bees. laughs> Jerry, the bee, Jerry, the bee, <laughs> vote oh. for Jerry, the bee. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god right okay. he did the rest he did the best rap battle like in hamilton yeah, exactly so they're like that's exactly. what we're doing yeah. got it yeah okay the best freestyle got it going on yeah. freestyle dancing yeah okay sweet yeah uh so to build off of this yeah we're gonna talk about something that i brought up earlier which are primitives and ambassadors um so first of all what a primitive is it's it's the part of your brain that kind of deals with survival um and it goes again in the book, like through all the different pathways of your brain and like the amygdala and like certain things that are causing like your primitives to shoot uh, fire, whatever, fire off and, and go to town and do their job. Okay. But they are kind of the first chain of command um, with respect to things like survival reflexes. So they function to trump all of your other needs and wants. Um, and they're really fantastic in identifying dangers and threats and then quickly deciding how to deal with those dangers and threats. Mm. Um, so again, like if you are in a argument with your um, significant other, then this could mean like identifying facial expressions or vocal inflection or harmful words. And then it can cause you as the receiver of those things to potentially act in certain ways or act quickly in a reactive way and not necessarily one that's like assessing the entire situation, which I found really interesting because again, like uh, I know for myself, I, I talk about it a lot as the like emotional side of myself on this podcast. And that often like I need a moment to like let that emotion simmer away mm. and then actually like take a second to think about what I'm actually going to speak about in that moment. Huh. So I feel like, in like a real life situation is this kind of like, like you're in an argument with your significant other and maybe they say a particular word, like maybe like a swear word, or they reach a particular tone in their voice or a particular volume of their voice. And like that triggers this feeling of like, Oh gosh, like maybe like the last time they hit this particular volume, we were talking about breaking up. And if we break up, then I'm going to be miserable and sad and terrible and die alone. You know, that it becomes this, and of course, that's not necessarily happening consciously. It's like you're not even having those conscious thoughts, but it seems like exactly. it's those, those primitives, those parts of your brain that are just like, you need to survive and you need to not, uh, you know, I guess not not survive in this situation. Mm -hmm. And so that's what triggers, I guess, the fight or flight response of like, mm -hmm. well, either I need to attack you back or I need to retreat or I need to, you know, again, like that deeper kind of emotional survival instinct comes to play that's yeah the like, warring parts of yeah, ourselves yeah that's like pre-thought it's like i think that's how you get into situations where you end up saying something before you've thought about it and mm -hmm. maybe yeah. something really exactly. hurtful or something like that yeah well and i think just to kind of build on your example that it's not just about you know the last time that you did this or the last time this thing happened but mm -hmm. it could be that because of my life i've developed a reaction to this particular again like you said type of facial expression right. or type of language or type of vocal inflection that to me signals danger that could have been something that was from, you know, my parents in childhood or a sibling during mm. childhood or, you know, any mm -hmm. number of other previous relationships, like all sorts of things. And, and to kind of go with the theme of parts of your brain being, you know, overdeveloped or less developed that 
I think we could see how, you know, you, you gave the example of how that being kind of overdeveloped can, can cause a problem, right? Where you, you react before you've really thought about it. Um, and you kind of have that like knee jerk reaction that yeah. on the other side of it would be someone I think who, if this were underdeveloped would be that they, they aren't able to see those dangers as clearly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Which could lead to someone possibly staying in a more abusive relationship or right. um, just sort of being in a more dangerous situation and not being aware of it or not understanding. Or just being, how being oblivious to their partner in that moment. Like it could be mm. rather benign, but just like if somebody continually gets upset over the same thing and their partner is not able to, to understand that or to like see it for what it is and based on the cues that they're giving them, mm -hmm. then that can be an issue as well. Just right. that they're not able to read their partner effectively in right. those moments. It also reminds me of stuff about like the people who are like natural lie detectors mm. who rather than, huh. rather than studying it and learning it, there are people who I forget there's a term they use for it, but you know, who are kind of naturals at this. Um, like in lie to me. Like, like in Lie to Me or in the book Telling Lies by Paul Ekman that that show is based off of um, mm. and his research and his life that that's based off of, that people who are naturals do tend to come from a background where their brain did have to hyperdevelop this part so, about like facial expressions and vocal inflections and stuff because perhaps... Maybe a parent that lied all the time or was a or was abusive or, or something. And mm -hmm. so they got really yeah. good at picking up those cues right. and things as a defense mechanism, you know, out, yeah. of, out of necessity. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it just kind of reminds me of that, of like, you could see how also given a certain circumstance, having this be overdeveloped would be a good thing, would mm -hmm. be a survival yes. thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I don't want to keep going, but it's just making me think of all these other books yeah. and things. Yeah. I love it. No, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I appreciate the fact that this book does sort of say like none of these things are inherently like bad or good mm. like yeah your primitives like aren't totally bad but obviously you can you need to be good at taming them in mm. the correct moment but obviously like because of your circumstances certain things may be more developed than others and right. that's okay that's just who you are um but you can work on them and that's what this is about so ambassadors on the other hand um they're like the more refined more rational more civilized parts of your brain um and they are also a lot slower to show up than the primitives um but they're more successful at keeping the primitives in check um if time is on their side so mm -hmm. doing something for example like taking a deep breath um it can help activate what's called the smart vagus there's the smart vagus and the dumb vagus the dumb vagus <laughs> Do they actually call it yeah. that I think it's no. Think it's like, it's Vegas? like a lay term Vegas? for it. Vegas, Vegas. I thought it was Vegas. Vegas, maybe Vegas. Vegas, yeah. Damn it, Vegas, Vegas. Yeah, like the Vegas, Vegas nerve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was the Vegas nerve. Okay, yeah, okay. Vegas. Maybe I don't yeah, know. Sure. Yeah, but there's like the smart and the dumb one. The dumb one will do something like if if you're getting your blood drawn at uh, the doctor's office and you feel mm. queasy, that's me all mm. the time. Like okay. It's the part of your body that's like there to help you not bleed out. Hmm. So like if you were oh. getting killed by a saber tooth tiger, then you might like start to go limp just because like your body is like shutting down that part 
that would continue to like pump blood out at a really fast rate. Right. Uh. And so and to, like lower it, your blood pressure by that's why you faint. Okay. It's like that's yeah. A, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so it does things like that even when you're not in danger because it thinks that maybe you are. Like again, I yeah. Right. I definitely give off danger signals in the doctor's office. I hate getting my blood drawn. Mm. Um but uh, the smart vagus will do other stuff. Like, again, if you take a deep breath, then it can activate the smart vagus and calm your body down. Can I just um, in a better way? Pop yeah. in here just to give it. So th- these are like layperson's terms that other people came up with, and people can't blame us for it being <laughs> yeah. ableist yeah. language. No, but it said, it said in the book that that's like a commonly used term. Okay. Both of them All right. Are. So please Hopefully. don't send an angry email to us about using ableist language. Send an angry email to. To yes, yes, Tadkin, sorry, smart and dumb, yes, of, they, of Wired for Love. Doctors, yes. doctors also use the word, what is it, that I hate so much? Um, oh, geriatric. geriatric. <laughs> yes. Oh, Regarding gosh. my uterus after a certain age. <laughs> right? Yes. Right. Anyways, so, thank you, doctors. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it's important to be aware of both your primitives and ambassadors um, just to recognize like when you need each of them, obviously in various mm-hmm. situations, like we just talked about, mm-hmm. um, but also to be aware of your partner's tells and your tells like when your primitives or ambassadors are coming into play. Um, and because that you can help them like become more at ease just if you, if you understand and know like things that are happening in terms of the primitives or ambassadors being there. Well, I feel like if you're aware of this and you're like, especially watching for this, both in yourself and a partner, I mean, I feel like what comes to mind for me is this seems like it can make it a lot easier to not take certain things personally in the moment. Mm-hmm. But if I know, you know, if my partner reacts in a particular way where I feel like maybe it's an overreaction or like, oh, this doesn't seem justified, I can realize like, oh, maybe that's kind of his primitive brain kicking in afraid of some kind of hurt or wanting Mm. to survive or something like that. And so maybe that's a cue to me to maybe be more compassionate or to call a halt, for instance, where I can be like, Hey, like, let's, cause like you said, Emily, you know, that the ambassadors, if they have time, then they can kind of get the upper hand over the primitives essentially to kind of help calm things down, which is all about, which is what, you know, halting is all about. So the idea that I can be aware of that, see that happening, my partner, and then decide Mm. like, Hey, actually let's, I'm going to go take a walk for 20 minutes or, or I'm going to go sit and meditate in my room for 20 minutes or whatever. And then we can come back to this, something like that. Yeah. I feel like I've definitely had, now that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about it in these terms, I've definitely had times um, where, I mean, even, even somewhat recently with you, Dedeker, where like, you'll be upset about something that's unrelated to me. Mm -hmm. Right. But so you're a little bit kind of more on edge and you'll say something to me that kind of makes me go, ah, and I'll kind of respond like also like a little bit reactively, a little bit like kind of some sort of snippy response. Mm -hmm. And maybe that'll go back and forth like twice. And then it's like this part of my brain catches up and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's, you know, like upset about this other thing. You're not really bothered by that. Like, why are you reacting this way? Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like, there wasn't that time for the ambassadors to kind of catch up and be like, whoa, let's, let's be compassionate and calm mm, the situation down instead yeah. of instead of reacting kind of more self-centeredly of like, oh, well, this was said to me or this tone was used with me. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. Yeah, and it is something that I think we've talked about before is that you still want to 
come at every situation like thinking that your partner has your best intentions mm. at heart. And I think that that's something to be aware of again here when like snippiness occurs or when something happens and you're like, why the hell would they say that? Like they're hurting me in this moment and they're just they just said that to piss me off or to hurt me that no, like, maybe something else is going on in that moment. I know that that's not always the case, but... I was going to say, But to I at think, least, like, come at it and think of it that way. Yeah, I think that's harder for people if they've ever had an experience where a partner has been, like, snippy or, you know, mm. and very much has been with the attention of, like, hurting them or abusing them or something like that. That Sure. You know, and I think that, again, that, that you know, comes to mind with the whole primitive thing of that, like, if your primitives in your brain are conditioned mm-hmm. to survive in the context of a partner who gets snippy with you and you know that that's a cue that they're about to get much meaner um, to you, that you can get, that can kind of get activated, I think, much sooner than maybe it could be with someone else. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think that's, again, to go back to the idea of balance, mm. right? That that it's not saying like, oh, the ambassadors are good and the primitives are bad. Right. But it's about finding balance between those because I've definitely known plenty of people, possibly even myself in certain situations where it's like the ambassadors have like too strong a hold, mm. mm-hmm. you know, and they're being too reasonable and too polite and too civil in a situation that's like, no, you should actually get the fuck out of this because this is not a good place you know this is not a good situation this is not a good relationship or not a good uh you know even like a job or a social situation or something right like this is not a healthy place for me to be and i'm kind of devaluing the opinion of the primitives Mm. when maybe i should be giving that a little more value so it's kind of constantly evaluating like where's that balance yeah definitely yeah when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. 
So now we want to get into some like practical application stuff. Um, and this is in the form of knowing your partner. Uh, so we'll kind of discuss like the issue that sometimes happens, uh, which is definitely something that I've said before in my relationships. And that's like that. I don't feel like I know my partner. I have no idea. Like even after years of being with them, I'm like, I don't know what you're thinking. Like I, I have a difficult time like reading your emotions or reading like what's happening behind your eyes. I have no idea. Um, and that definitely, definitely can be a challenging, difficult place to be in a relationship. Yeah, it it reminds me of Kathy Labriola found some research where actually we're much more likely, like the more time we spend with someone, we're more likely to fall under the false assumption that we do know them better, a lot better than we did at the start. Oh, yeah, I remember this. When yeah. actually like couples who've been together for a long time are at more of a risk of misunderstanding each other because they've kind of built up a story about each other and how Whoa. the other one functions you know, that we often kind of relate to that story. And then when our partner does something different, then we're like, whoa, I feel like I don't know this person. Um, that is actually more likely to cause that phenomenon over time. Huh. Yeah. Well, and they talked about in the book, like how when you first start dating someone, you're probably very touchy feely, like very sexual with them. And it's because all of those, like, what is it? Dopamine and Cortisol? No, 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 serotonin. Serotonin. Serotonin, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, all of that is like firing and making you super duper lovey-dovey happy. And so you're touching each other all the time and being really sexual, but then as that starts to wear off, depending on like your relationship style, you may not really touch each other that much anymore. And then that can leave one or both of you to be like, wait a minute, who the hell is this person? Mm -hmm. Like they were very intimate with me and now they're not. Right. Yeah, that's, gosh. I also remember um, that uh, Dr. Mike, who's all, I guess all of ours yeah. now. He's uh, the official chiropractor him. of multi-emory. Yeah, he's our chiropractor, <laughs> but also just, um, you know, cool cool guy and likes to share pieces of wisdom with us. Um, but what he was talking about with couples specifically, um, not being active around each other can be a problem. And that huh. it has to do with like, sweating around each other essentially if like if couples will work out whether that's you know going for little hikes or walks or or actually like lifting weights or whatever is getting more of your like body odors essentially because uh-huh. you're sweating a little bit and smelling those can help to kind of reignite some of those like chemical um interesting things you know that that were what brought you together in the first place right so be huh. sweaty around each other essentially i mean not all the time maybe but you know <laughs> To but like, don't be afraid to be sweaty around each other. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, so yeah, it, I, it, it goes like very in depth into attachment styles, which I do, it, we might t- touch on a little bit, but honestly, I, I would love to do like a very, a separate discussion about that in a yeah. later episode. Um, but the way in which he characterizes each of the different styles, um, he calls uh, secure attachment people anchors he calls anxious attachment people waves and then avoidant attachment islands which i find very cute like a nice <laughs> way of putting it um yeah, but then you know your attachment style really happens based on your parents so they like set the standard for how you relate to each other and to the world um, and then, you know, you're really like adapting at a very early age and this travels on into all of your relationships over time. 
Huh. So, I mean, can I just jump in with a super, super quick, really run, you know, watered down description uh, oh, of attachment yeah. theory, just for people who don't know? Um, Please. We did an episode on it a long time ago. Yeah, a time long ago. time ago, but just super quick. So the idea is that, uh, you know, our parents or like close relationships that we grow up with really affect how we tend to attach to other adults in our romantic life um, when we grow up. And uh, just in a nutshell, like when we're securely attached, you know, if a quote unquote attachment crisis happens, and that can be anything, it could be your partner, you know, needing to leave you in the morning to go to work. It could be your partner going on a date with someone else if you're in, you know, a consensually non-monogamous relationship. It Mm -hmm. could be your partner just needing to go away for an extended period of time or moving to a different city and it has to be a long distance relationship. Or like we Um, talked about the other day, just like needing some personal time, needing some space Mm. away from everyone or maybe just away from you yeah right yeah. like that could be a crisis yeah. so yeah so any number of attachment crises can happen and the way that you react to it often is a clue of how you're attached and so a secure attachment you know an attachment crisis probably won't be really be a crisis really it'll mm. you know they'll take it in stride it'll be okay um you know they'll be able to reconnect and it'll be fine People who are anxiously attached, it seems, it sounds kind of self-explanatory, but, you know, an attachment crisis will produce more anxiety, um, more insecurity, more worry that if this person's separating from me, that maybe they're going to be gone forever. Maybe they're abandoning me, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so a lot more fear, anxiety caused by that. People who are avoidant attached tend to go in the opposite direction. So it's a little more of like, oh, if this person's separating from me or leaving from me, I'm going to leave too. Or I'm going to separate myself too. And that's, and I'm just, you know, I think that's why he calls them islands. Like I'm just going to separate myself right. and be my little yeah. island. And that's, you know, how I react. And these attachment styles can change depending on the relationship. You may be securely attached in one relationship and then feel more anxious in another. It can change depending on the period of your life that you're going through. Um, so there's that. That's some of attachment theory in a nutshell. Well, something yeah. else that's that's been debated a lot is... <laughs> Is your attachment style something that, you know, was set in childhood and now you're just stuck with this one forever? Or is this something that you can change that can develop over your life? And I was asking you earlier, Emily, for the author of this book, who I would say is more qualified than any of us to speak about such things as a, you know, a doctor of psychology. Um, what, what was his position on that? Like that it is something you can change in effect over time or are you just stuck with it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously like it coming up from, from young childhood, you probably are going to have certain tendencies and be closely aligned with one versus the other. Um, and really honestly, it says that that has a lot to do with your relationship with your parents at a very young age. Uh, But because um, you might be in relationships with, like, secure people, if you are not a secure attachment style, that secure attachment can actually kind of pull you into being a secure attachment yourself. Hmm. Um, And then also, if you and your partner are both, you know, one is an island and one is a wave, then obviously, like, the things that he talks about in this book are ways in which to become more securely attached uh, and and so yes, absolutely, you can change that. But again, he he doesn't frame it as like any of them being ideal or bad or whatever. But probably for your relationship, like one would want to be as secure as possible, mm-hmm. just for your own happiness and for the the sake of your relationship. Right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Got but it. I found that to be interesting because because you said like in Ireland, for example, like there's a lot of good things about that. Like they're super low maintenance. 
they can be independent. They're not upset like when the partner needs to go on a business trip or whatever. Stuff like that. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So there's maybe the, some good then, parts to, to all of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So right. um but there are, yeah, some solutions that we'll talk about. Uh, so really like a solution that he talked about is to know your partner, to know your partner as well as you can, which again, it, this book is written for monogamous couples. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of where it starts to get potentially murky into going into like a polyamorous mm-hmm. relationship because it's still, I think talking about like a couple who has been together for like a really long period of time mm-hmm. and who puts themselves in a primary situation. That's kind of what I think he's talking about. Um, but that if, if you and your partner can read and understand each other, then you have the ability to like care for each other, influence each other and manage one another, which I find that wording is <laughs> yeah, challenging. Man- yeah. Well, and he even said manage as though like how a parent can manage their child. Huh. And I was again I That's was how like it feels but mm. but I also kind of get it. I also like kind of understand what he's getting at that like in the moment if you know what hurts your partner and you can provide the antidote for that then you are in essence like managing their emotion mm-hmm. for them or helping to helping. I to. don't know. I, I know. Uh, I, I think it's, it's hard because I, I, I agree. If I'm trying to just like think about what's sort of the heart of this and kind of like what's the, the good in this is like, yes, I understand that, that anyone, and, and I, I think this doesn't have to be just monogamous, but anyone that you are in, especially if you're in a relationship where you're around each other quite a lot, or you're really sharing with each other a lot, you you know, even if that's just through phone or text, if it's long distance, but like you definitely have influence over each other. I know, you know, my partners influence me quite a bit and I try to find partners who influence me in good ways and, you know, inspire me to, you know, achieve more and be the best person I can be all that. And so managing one another, it's like, like we mentioned earlier, the idea that, oh, I, I know that my partner's upset about this other thing or they're stressed about this other thing, so I'm going to intentionally right now try not to add more stress to them and instead try to counteract that, help them feel good. Like, I guess you could word that as managing them. It's just that word and that parental, like, subtext to it is what seems troubling, you know? Yeah, yeah I mean, it Dedeker go, because I, I know... I'm moving on to the next part oh, to kind of yeah. like talk about that. Well, just the parental thing. I, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think it's bad if it if you feel like a parent all the time in your relationship sure. or if you feel like the child all the time. Like that's when things are maybe a little bit toxic or unhealthy. Um, but I think about the fact that like if you have a child and you're out on a walk and a scary dog like barks at your child and their child starts crying and you know from a very young age your child had a bad experience with dogs um, is really scared that as a parent, you know, like, okay, I'm going to comfort, I'm going to take care of her and like try to get her back to normal and let her know that it's safe and it's okay. Now, if we put that in adult language, if it's like, you know, I have a partner who had a really frustrating day at work, maybe he was like chastised by a boss or a superior. And I know that like that really bothers him because of something that happened in his childhood or that's happened to him at work before. And so I just know, like he comes and he tells me like, oh, this happened at work today. And so knowing my partner, I know that I can step up 
and offer some comfort, offer some support, um, even before he's asked for it. Does that kind of yes. like, that's how I kind of see Absolutely. it. Like in the same way that that, like your little kid is not going to come to you and ask you like, Hey, this really scary dog scared me. And I have a problem with dogs. Can you comfort me? Like as a parent, you know, um, but of course it gets into the dangerous territory of wanting to make the assumption that your partner should just always know what it is that you need. Right. I think that's where yeah. the balancing act comes in. And I think also that I think this tends to, at least the way I've seen it talked about by people tends to go mostly just one direction in a relationship. Mm. And and he clearly is talking about like, it needs to be a two way street. Like right. you have to know your partner and they have to know you and you can't like be the one to ask necessarily for something. You, you just like let it happen and also like be there and don't wait for your partner to ask for something of you kind of is yeah it, it gets into that a bit huh. but then also like your partner could it should kind of know like what has the most power to push your buttons um and then also like when your partner feels bad then you should immediately kind of sense why and then also like know how to remedy the situation with things like the right words or, or acts of service or something like that and that again is getting into to the knowing your partner as well as possible. Um, uh, could, and, could I propose yes. a, a slight wording change? Uh, sure. And that's removing the word "should" from all of that statement because mm-hmm. I feel like using "should" I think is uh, in general. I've talked oh, about yeah, this. You hate shoulds. Uh, shoulds. Uh, I I use them, but I wish I didn't. <laughs> um, I, I think that they're. It's a very. Uh, it's a very loaded word that has a lot of sort of judgment attached to it. Mm-hmm. And in this case, mm-hmm. it's sort of you should is I think where people get into that thing of like, Oh, well my partner should just know I shouldn't mm-hmm. have to tell them I should, should, should. Right. Um, and perhaps if we reworded this to say that, you know, as you get to know your partner better and are more intentional about that, you can learn what has the power to push their buttons in negative and positive ways. And that when they're feeling bad, being better able to sense that and understand how to remedy remedy that situation with the right words or or actions, um, you know, can be a very powerful thing. Mm. So rather than yeah. a should, like it's your responsibility or your job, it's more like, hey, here's an option. Yeah. Here, here's something sure. that you could learn to be better at. Yeah. Anyway, and that's, talk- that's my well, soapbox about should. Yeah. No, I I, <laughs> I hear you, and and he talks about how. Um, go go through a list with your partner like sit down write down your four or five things that consistently like irk you or tweak you or that you always like that pushes a button really Mm -hmm. and then you can do the same thing for your partner and the two of you can look at them and make known you know this consistently is a thing that constantly makes me Mm -hmm. upset and and then in on the flip like what can I do to help them in that situation? Right. Can, like, can so, we get into that then? Yeah. Can we just yeah. go, go to there? I want to yeah. talk more about that. So can, can you explain more about what that process looks like about the making the list thing? Like, yeah. So even just, you can sit down with your partner and write down, like, again, it maybe maybe things from childhood. I know Dedeker, you actually talked about this a long time ago with your sister, like all the things it, it this to me sort of, uh, goes along with that that she with her therapist like talked about like the things oh, in gosh. her life yeah yeah yeah, that, yeah yeah that were challenging moments 
Yeah, my sister and her husband, when they were doing some some premarital counseling, they had to uh, sit down okay. and like make it was kind of a different exercise where they had to sit down and like make a timeline of their lives and on the timeline put down like basically any time that they had been majorly hurt, like kind mm-hmm. of turning points in their life. Because huh. the therapist was kind of trying to demonstrate to them like when you fight, these are all the things that are going to like that's this is where it all stems from. This is where all the emotion is going to stem from, you know. Yeah. Wow. Um you you know, you feeling abandoned as a child or being ignored as a child or you know, someone you know, your first boyfriend cheating on you or whatever. Like these are the things that are uh you know, foundationally there that are potentially going to get triggered or going to float up to the surface right. when you have an argument. I mean, I could see that being very related to this. Yeah, though, yeah, yeah, right? definitely. That's, Absolutely. That's that's why it triggered in my mind. I was like, "Oh, but like it, they're talking about parents and children and and sort of, you know, the things that happen in your young life that affect your your life as uh, an adult." And with that too, you're, you can do it for yourself and then your partner can do it and you can exchange information. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side, well, yeah, I, I guess, like you said, Dedeker, like they talked about specifically how things that like anchors um, and uh, waves and islands, what they would feel, uh, things that would kind of irk them specifically, like like lack of order mm-hmm. Um being picked on as a child, things like being blamed, being abandoned, uh, feeling like a burden. Um, he talked about this couple, like where the woman didn't feel intelligent enough and where the man didn't feel like he was attractive enough for her, things like that. Um, and so again, in contrast, we should figure out the specific things that, that no, no we make our... We can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we... Need to no, uh, no, no. ideally, ide- we we can ideally we have the we opportunity would. to yeah okay sure we have the opportunity to <laughs> okay we have the opportunity to uh, do things like knowing the specific thing that makes our partner happy, um, and then those can act as antidotes when things go awry. So. Saying something like, you know, you're such a good man, you're such a good parent, you're an amazing partner to me, you're so sexy, I love, you know, your amazing mind, I love being with you, stuff like that. Like things that really uh, bring out the emotion in your partner and, and can routinely like make them feel happy and good again. So if I can kind of boil all this down, so it seems like this the practical exercise is like sitting down with your partner and and each of you making a list of you know, what are the things that always push your buttons, whether it's something like, you know, coming home and, and the house is just like totally in disarray, or if yeah. I feel like I'm not being listened to, or if I feel like I'm not attractive, you know, and, and it seems it seems like the way that this is worded is kind of like making it a more general list rather than a list that's like, when you say this to me, or <laughs> right, when right. you make me feel this way, or when you do this, that it's more of like, when I feel like this is happening or when this happens to me, like that really bothers me or, or triggers me or whatever. And then on the flip side, making the list of antidotes of like, when I feel like my partner thinks I'm sexy, you know, it feels good. Or when my partner has done like something like done an act of service for me, I think that you can also incorporate love language stuff into this. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's kind of like making your list of the buttons that get pushed and then also making a list of the antidotes just for both of you in order to be able to be aware of those things yeah, and be able to, you know, have that knowledge so that you can trot it out 
when things are starting to fall apart in an argument or something. Yeah. 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 Okay. Sorry, I was starting to lose you in the audio on the mic there. Jeez. <laughs> Uh, I think also I want to point out that, that he mentions three or four things. Yes. Right. So kind yeah, of keep it, this list minimal. It's not just like every little pet peeve type thing. It's like, well, because like everything can ones? be sort of distilled down to like three or four major things that consistently come mm. up in various ways in your life. Like if it's like fear of being abandoned, then, you know, when you say this thing, it triggers that fear of abandonment within me. Mm. And again, then specifically finding a thing or, multiple things that you can say in that moment to be like, I, you know, I want to be with you. I love being with you so much. Like I will never leave you or whatever. Not that we would necessarily say that, but still, you know, it's some sort of antidote that's very specific to the thing that mm. constantly mm. hurts them. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to make a suggestion. Uh-huh. I feel Please. like this exercise could be a good exercise to incorporate into a radar for instance, mm. those of you who haven't heard about what a radar is, go look up our episode on radar um, and learn all about it. But I feel like in the section where you're talking about fights or arguments, especially if you've come to that section and you don't have any fights or arguments to talk about recently, I feel like that's a good time Yeah, when you're not in the midst of conflict to like, hey, let's sit down and talk about these things, like talk about you know, the, again, like the things that push my buttons or the things that kind of make me feel scared or, or lonely or like activate my primitives or whatever. And then kind of going through this exercise. That's my suggestion. I think that could be useful. Yeah. And I think that could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, Absolutely. The timeline thing's really interesting to me too. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a cool one to, to try to then kind of see how that relates to the things that like, these, these are the things that come up the most often. And, right. Um, and I'd also be curious to hear what, partners would identify as the things that tend to activate me feeling upset versus what I think they are. Oh yeah. That would be mm, interesting too. Yeah. yeah. That'd be really fascinating. Right? Huh. Absolutely. Gosh. And again, like seeing how well, you know, your partner in that, in that moment. Mm -hmm. So again, because this whole book was clearly written for the monogamous couple in mind, I did want to sort of ask the question, how does all of this apply to polyamorous relationships, multi-partner relationships? Because again, like in my mind, you do sort of have to take time to know a person in order to sort of go through these steps and figure out like, what are your primitives? What are your ambassadors? Like what makes your partner tick? What makes them pissed off? What makes them happy? Mm -hmm. I guess theoretically one could do it early. Well, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, being in a multi-partner relationship could also be a very long-term relationship. I, I think no, of course this, Unlike other episodes where we've talked about kind of techniques for like, you know, what to do right away to kind of establish good habits in a relationship. I feel like this topic is a little bit more for the more established relationships. Mm -hmm. I think understanding it, you could help to, you know, keep that in mind earlier on in your relationship. But yeah, it does seem like this is much more for those people you, you have gotten to know much more intimately and, and know more about them over time. Well, let me just point out the very long subtitle of this book. Uh -huh. um, not that I can throw any shade on long subtitles, um, but <laughs> you know, the full title of the book is Wired for Love, How Understanding Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship. What that says to me is like, this book is written for someone who's already in a long-term relationship that maybe is starting to go sour or is providing some kind of frustration and they want to fix it. Mm. It's not mm -hmm. marketed 
at least not intentionally marketed to like, hey, this is something that's useful for you to know when starting a new relationship, even though it is. So I yeah. feel like that's something to bear in mind is not only the fact that the author wrote it for, you know, traditional monogamous couples, but also it seems like it's kind of under this understanding that like there's already been some shit that's happened in your relationship that you need to sort out. And maybe this could be a framework that could help you sort that out, hmm. which take that yeah. for what you will, whether that's a good place to start from or not. Mm -hmm. But, but I think for the most part, if we, if we take first the assumption that this is built around relationships where you do, you know, know each other quite well, and this is sort of a more established relationship that I think that pretty much everything in this feels to me like it can apply equally well to a multi-partner relationship, yeah. right? If, if you're applying this within each dyad, right? Mm -hmm. Within each two-person relationship and people that you relate with, understanding these things about each other as well as developing a better understanding of the balance within your own mind, I think could be, still be really helpful in, in exactly the same way. You just will need to be an expert in multiple partners. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, you'll... It, I mean, because that's what he says. He's like, become an expert in your partner. But you also will just have to do that with a bunch of people or two people or three people or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, be able to discern what makes each of them tick and what makes each of them hurt and things like that. And probably that's more challenging than just one, I'm assuming. Well, I think <laughs> but also well, so, awesome. So much of it depends on context, right? Because if you have three partners, but maybe you're like really strictly independent solo poly and these three partners are kind of more casual connections, like maybe there's not as much of a drive to have sure. to get to know each person in this particular way. Or maybe your three partners are a mix. Like maybe two of them are really intensely emotionally important to you and one's more casual, you know, like it's going to depend on what you feel is going to be helpful for your relationships. I would say that like, if you are interested in having like a very long term emotionally intense, healthy relationship, it probably would behoove you to have these things in mind and do this kind of work in each relationship that you want to have that in, I would mm -hmm. think. Well, my thought was actually that I think doing stuff like, you know, making these lists and being a little more um, intentional about it, right. Of kind of determining what are these things that, that happen and what are the things most comforting or most threatening to this particular partner and doing it in a more structured way, I actually think could be very helpful for multiple partner relationships for multiple relationships that you have, because I feel like if we're not being conscious and thinking about it intentionally, it's very easy to just be like, Oh, well, this is just my habit of like, this is how I respond to this type of thing. And that's gotten me good results in the past. And now if it doesn't, it's like, well, something's wrong with you. Hmm. Right. Because, you know, we, we haven't consciously thought about this is something I'm doing because of these things about my partner and because of the relationship I want to have. And instead, it's just sort of like, especially if, if you've been in like a 20 year long relationship that you're now opening up and having new right. relationships, you maybe do have good communication, and, but it might be stuff that you've all developed unconsciously hmm. and that now you're going to start applying those to other relationships where they might not be appropriate at all. In fact, they might be the opposite of what would be the best way to talk to or to help this other person. Right. And so sure. I think the idea of getting more intentional about it can be really helpful. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and I guess in a way you could perceive that as more work, but I don't know. 
it seems like less greater reward, right? And maybe less work in the long run of trying to like repair situations, right? Right. right. Of like now having to undo the damage of like Mm -hmm. really unintentional or communication from 20 years past or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, what a fascinating subject, the brain. (laughs) <laughs> and, and relationships man someone should make a podcast about relationships they're I so know. interesting we should get so your dad on the podcast would that be really weird i don't know that might be weird i don't know yeah. i could talk to him about it just to talk about more neuroscience stuff i don't know he's a patreon supporter of ours okay, so great. that's true let's see if he, he wants is. to be thank you jason's dad <laughs> uh cool yeah if you would like to have your question or your comment played on the show, you can call 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. And you can leave us a voicemail there. You can also send us an audio message at the Multiamory Facebook page. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Or, of course, you can send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. To support our show and to join our private Facebook community, go to patreon.com slash multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.